We're starting a new series today in a new book, the book of Ecclesiastes. I want you to turn there with me. If you have your Bible, uh, turn there. It's easy to find. You have the Psalms, and then you have uh, Proverbs, and then the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not very long, so you might pass over it, but it's right after uh, Proverbs. So uh, we're going to begin today a study that will run through at least part of the summer, maybe most of the summer, in this book. This book is often misunderstood, misinterpreted. It is very often misapplied. And so we want to look at, maybe you've never gone through the book of Ecclesiastes before. Uh, If that's the case, then I I hope it will be a help. One of the men in the first service, after the service, said to me, he'd read the book of Ecclesiastes many times, but uh, he had a much better understanding of it after today and was looking forward to reading it again. So Ecclesiastes, it's a poetic book. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, all those are poetic books. Now that doesn't mean it's written where it rhymes, but it's written... Uh, in a poetic way, using poetic phrases and so forth. And you have to dig a little deeper. As someone said, it's a really deep book. You've got to dig a little deeper to get the meaning. And part of that is because it's a poetic book. Uh, so um, it, uh, it is interesting. I think you'll find it interesting. Now, we're only going to read the first three verses to start with. Keep your Bibles open, though, if you would. Look at verse 1. The words of the preacher... The son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. (laughs) The whole, all of life is vanity, he says. Vanity means meaningless, empty, uh, emptiness, vain. So he's saying all of life is empty and all of life is vain. And uh, vanity of vanities. One translation translates it like this. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. And so then verse 3. What profit, what benefit, what's the purpose uh, hath a man of all his labor? And the word labor there means more than just your occupation, uh, your livelihood. It means all of your activity, your livelihood included, but mowing the grass or whatever else you do, exercise, any activity. And uh, he says, what profits any of it? Uh, His labor, which he taketh under the sun. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for our time together in your word today. Make it profitable for each of us, I pray. Help us to understand, open our eyes, and let us see. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Came across an article this past week of some college students who writing for a college newspaper. They, uh, they were trying to define life. And so uh, uh, people sent in definitions, their own definitions of life. Here's some of the ones that won the awards. Uh, the first one, one college student writes... Life is a joke and isn't even funny. Another one writes, Life is a jail sentence we get for the crime of being born. Wow, that's cynical, isn't it? 
And another says, life is a disease from which the only cure is death. I don't know about you, that's some pretty negative stuff, isn't it? Those are the best ones. Uh, But it's not just college students. It's not just that generation. Some some people you think might know better. Some somewhat well-known people. Uh, For instance, uh, Irma Bombeck said, If life is a bowl of cherries, why do I always get the pits? You would almost think that's what... Solomon is saying, I mean, he's saying something very similar here. He says, meaningless, meaningless, all of life is meaningless, utterly meaningless. Wow, that could make you depressed. And that seems to contrast. It seems to be in opposition to the New Testament where Jesus said, I come that you might have life and might have it abundantly, abundant life. And so... You have the college students. Here's some other interesting ones. This one from a Jewish scholar, Shalom uh, Alekman. He describes life as, quote, a blister on top of a tumor and a ball on top of that. Wow. You can just about feel that definition, can't you? Here's another one. American poet Carl Sandburg. He writes, Life is an onion. You peel it off one layer at a time, and sometimes you weep. George Shaw writes, Life is a series of inspired follies or foolishness. And then the last one by Matthew Arnold, and you may have studied this poem in in, uh, in school, I know uh, I did. And uh, it talks about the monotony of life and how it just repeats itself over and over again. And then it comes down to the last lines and says that man is striving blindly, achieving nothing, and then we die. Well, that's pretty depressing right there. And some people have thought that Solomon was depressed, that he was a cynic. Uh, But I think once we get into the book, we'll understand it differently. By the way, this kind of thinking brings about discouragement and depression. I mean, if that's really what life's all about... That's a depressing thing. Miss Karen came across an article this past week uh, about depression globally. This is what it says. Globally, there are more than 300 million people of all ages suffering from depression. Depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide. Wow. And is a major contributor to the overall global burden of disease. At its worst, depression can lead to suicide. And then I saw an article just yesterday on the news. And uh, about uh, University of North Carolina. And they've just done a a year-long research project on the students there. 
And this is what they concluded. This is a general statement. I didn't get all the details, but it says, and I quote them, a majority of undergrads, that is more than 50%, I don't know how many, but more than 50%, a majority of undergrads suffer from depression, anxiety, or suicidal thoughts. And so they're working on putting together a plan to help in mental health. Wow. Depression. Life, Solomon says, is meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Well, let's read the next verses now, starting in verse 4. And in these verses, he talks about the cycles of life, the monotony of life. For instance, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but, you know, you... You get up early in the morning, you get ready, you go to work, you work all day, you come back home and you go to bed and get up early the next morning, go right back to work and do the same job and, and then you come back home and you sleep again, you go right, I mean it's just, one, it just do one day after another, they're all alike and on and on it goes. We're like, we're like uh, uh, you know, the little uh, hamster in that wheel and uh, we're, you can run fast or you can run slow. It doesn't make any difference. You're not going anywhere, you know. You're just spinning around, spinning around. That's the way life is in many ways and that's something that he's going to talk about here in these cycles of life in these next verses. We'll come back to them and cover them a little better next week, but let's at least read through them. Look at verse 4. One generation passeth away and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteneth to the place where it arose. The wind goeth towards the south, and turns about to the north, and whirls about continually, and the wind returns again according to its circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full, unto the place where from whence the rivers came, thither they return again. Wow. The science in this is remarkable. This book was written 3,000 years ago. And uh, there's some things just in these verses right here that man didn't know until our generation. Uh, but God, of course, knew it. Uh, God knows all science because he's the creator of all science and uh, creator of the universe. And then verse 8 says, all things are full of labor. Now that word labor means wearisome. It means stress and, and the idea of being overwhelmed and, and um, all, all things. Life is full of wearisomeness. Uh, wearisomeness. Man cannot utter it. You can't even explain how frustrated, uh, frustrating life is. I is not satisfied. Think about the miracle of seeing. We can see and what a miraculous gift that is from God. But in all the seeing, we're still not satisfied. Man's not satisfied with seeing, nor is he satisfied with hearing. Either one, verse 8 says. Verse 9, the thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Whatever, whatever you do tomorrow, somebody else has already done it. You've probably already done it yourself, whatever you do tomorrow. And so life just repeats itself. It's this unending cycle of frustration and meaningless activity. Again, it's depressing, isn't it? I hope we get to a better part pretty soon. Look at the rest of it, though, verse 10. Is there anything thereof 
it, if, is there anything thereof, it may be said, see, this is new. It has been already of old time, which was before us. And there is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come. Those that come after with those that come after. So whatever you do, it's going to be forgotten. And everything people did in the past, it's forgotten. Whatever people do in the future, it'll be forgotten. And all life is vanity of vanities. Wow. I can see why people misunderstand this book uh, and misinterpret it and misapply it. Now, let's think about who wrote the book. I've already said Solomon two or three times probably, but really the name Solomon is not here in the book. Uh, verse 1, he calls himself the preacher, and he calls himself the son of David. And uh, so here's, uh, here's some thoughts on who's the author of the book from uh, internal evidence. The author identified himself as son of David, but David had a lot of sons. But uh, he said also he was the king in Jerusalem. He also said he was the king over Israel in Jerusalem. He also said he was wiser than anyone who had ruled before him in Jerusalem. And uh, he was a builder of great projects. You remember Solomon built many great projects, but his greatest project was the temple, the first temple. And, uh, and then uh, the person in this book says he possessed numerous servants and uh, that he was incomparable as far as his herds of sheep and cattle go, and that he was of great wealth. And, of course, all of those things describe Solomon, and nobody else would fit that except Solomon. So this is, this is Solomon, King David's son, who's writing this to us. Now, let's think about Solomon a minute. Remember, he asked for wisdom when God said you can have anything you want, just ask for it. He asked for wisdom to rule the nation of Israel wisely. And God gave him that wisdom and great wealth as well, the Bible says. And, uh, but we also know that later in life, he turned away from the Lord and went his own way. What we might call, he backslid. He walked out of God's will. And he lived a sinful life. I mean, an extremely sinful life. Now, when did he write this book? Well, he wrote this book apparently after that sinful part of his life because he, he talks about how he experimented with this, seeking, seeking uh, fulfillment, seeking pleasure and meaning in life through all these different ways. And so... I believe, though, the historical account does not mention it. I believe this book verifies the fact that somewhere later in life, he comes back to the Lord, back in the fellowship, back yielding his life to the Lord. And it was in those late years that he writes this book to warn people not to go down the same path he went down. So I believe that uh, uh, Proverbs and Song of Solomon were written uh, in his younger days with that great wisdom God gave him. And I believe that Ecclesiastes was written in his last years after he had experienced these things and found the emptiness in all of life. And uh, so he writes this book to warn us. So there's the author. Now, uh, let's think about the theme for a minute. Look at your screen. 
The theme we've already read is uh, meaningless or vanity. Uh, vanity of vanities is used twice here at the beginning of the book and then it's repeated again like when you come to the close he repeats again this idea of vanity of vanities life is empty life is meaningless and this includes uh, these are the, some of the things along the way he says was meaningless toil again this toil means more than uh, your livelihood, it means any activities you do. Your activities are meaningless. Your toil, your job is meaningless, he says. And then he says, your wisdom is meaningless. He said, wealth is meaningless. Prestige or your testimony, pleasure is meaningless. Righteousness is... Righteousness is meaningless? That's what he says. And then he says, youth and vigor is meaningless. And even the future after death is meaningless. Wow. If we stop there, we'd all go home to press, wouldn't we? Let's don't stop there. Here are some key words and phrases. Vexation of spirit, used nine times. The word vext vexation means frustration, aggravation, feeling stressed and overwhelmed. That's vexation. The word spirit there refers to our human spirit or to our heart, to our attitude. And so life, life makes us feel frustrated in our spirit, in our, in our heart, he says. Now, if you, if you go back to the root words from which these words come, the Hebrew root for vexation... Uh, means grasping or holding or trying to lay hold of something. And then the word spirit is the word wind or breath. And so the root of this idea is grasping after the wind, trying to catch the wind. What if you went out tomorrow and all day you tried to catch the wind? It wouldn't be a very fruitful day, would it? It would be meaningless. And that's the way he's describing life. Life is like trying to catch the wind. Vexation of spirit. And then he says, or this is a phrase, vanity of vanities. We've already seen that. It's used three times, two times up front, that exact phrase. And once at the end of the book, meaning meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. And uh, then the words themselves, though, either vanity or vanities, is used 38 times. There's only 12 chapters, so it's used 38 times through the entire book. So the book is saturated with the idea of meaningless life. And uh, then we have this phrase, under the sun, used 27 times. Now there's another phrase, I didn't list it, under heaven. Under heaven's used three times, and it means the same thing as under the sun. Under heaven, under the sun. So 30 times that phrase is used. And I believe this is the key that makes the book understandable. This is the key that makes things make sense. Life is miserable and empty under the sun. Now remember, this is a poetic book, this is poetic language. He's using the term 
under the sun as opposed to above the sun where God dwells. And so if you're just taking a solely uh, human assumption or, uh, or uh, evaluation, then life is meaningless because you're taking that which is under the sun instead of taking into account God who is above the sun. So I think under the sun has the idea of without God. Now you can't translate it like that. Don't misunderstand me. But I think you could interpret it like that. Paraphrase it like that. Under the sun means without God. So for instance if you just look back at verse 3 that we've read in the opening. Look at verse 3. What profit hath a man of all of his labor which he taketh under the sun? Or without God. Without God, all of life is without profit. Without God, life is meaningless, utterly meaningless. That's the idea of this great poetic book. It's all of its evaluation is taken under the sun. Without God, purely human, everything is meaningless. It's God himself who puts meaning into life, into my life into your life. For instance, someone in the New Testament might say, there is no peace for mankind without Jesus Christ. Or he might say, uh, life is empty without Jesus Christ. Well, that's what Solomon is saying. Life is meaningless without God under the sun. If you're just looking at it from a purely human standpoint, without involving God, life is meaningless. And we're like, we're like rodents running around a wheel and going nowhere. That's, that's the reason it makes sense in that last list I gave you where he says, even righteousness is meaningless. It's referring to our righteousness. The Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags. There is none righteous, so our own righteous is meaningless. And so it would apply, of course, to lost people who do not have God, do not have a personal relationship with God. Their lives are meaningless. But also, and more important to us, is that though you and I may know the Lord, we may live our lives like people who don't. And we might live our lives trying to find purpose and meaning in things, in possessions, in money, in promotions, in, uh, in the work we do. We might try to find our joy and our peace and, uh, and purpose in life through those things. And if we do, then it's utterly meaningless. You see, Solomon was that kind of person. Solomon was somebody who knew the Lord but walked away from the Lord and he lived like somebody who didn't know the Lord. And he tried all these different ways through life to satisfy his soul and he could not be satisfied and that's what this book is about. Only God can satisfy the soul of man. He created man for himself. And until we feel that purpose, we are... Purposeless, meaningless. And so, uh, if we're saved, we need to bring 
God into every part of our life and allow Him to be in every part. One more word here, or set of words. Joy and rejoice. Now, aren't you glad those words are in there somewhere? I am definitely. Uh, joy and rejoice 17 times is used in this book. God is said to be the giver of joy. And that we should rejoice in his giving of joy. And so, uh, this brings real purpose in this book. God is the giver of joy, and that's what gives meaning to life. You know, Revelation is progressive. I'm talking about uh, specific revelation, God's Word. Revelation is progressive. If all we had was the first chapter of Genesis, that would be wonderful, but we would still be much in the dark. If, if we didn't have the New Testament, the Old Testament would be hard to understand. We need the New Testament. We need the light of the New Testament to help us understand and rightly interpret the Old Testament. Revelation is progressive. The closer you got to the New Testament, the more He gives us. And in the New Testament, we have Christ, the Redeemer, and the Savior, and God who comes in the flesh. And uh, we see in the New Testament then that real joy comes from Christ Himself. It's a gift from Christ. David would say it. Solomon's dad would say, In thy presence is fullness of joy. John the Apostle would write and say, I've written these things to you about fellowship with the Father and the Son, and I've written to you that your joy might be full. God wants us to be happy. He wants us to be joyous. Not happy in the sense of the world, but happy in the sense of joy that comes from Christ. And so joy. New Testament, we're called into the fellowship, quote, of God's Son. And Jesus talks about peace and joy and abundant life. Now, we're going to close in, a, in another passage in just a second, but let me tell you this. There are seven conclusions in the book of Ecclesiastes. So you have a section of the book comes down to a closing summary or a conclusion, and there's seven of those through the book. And we're going to look at the first of that, those seven as we close. So look over in chapter 2 now. He has said, and we read much of chapter 1, but then he talks about the meaningless of human wisdom. And the, in chapter 2, the meaningless of pleasure and wealth and materialism and so forth. And then he comes down to verse 24. And those three verses, 24 through 26, is that summary, that first conclusion in the book. And it's where we get the idea of truth about joy. Verse 24, There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should enjoy, uh, make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw, that it was from the hand of God. Now he says... He doesn't, it's not like the Epicureans who said, eat, drink, because tomorrow we die. It's not that philosophy. He's saying, eat and drink, not alcohol, but eat and drink, 
and enjoy the blessings of life that God has given you. Enjoy the, enjoy the little things. Enjoy life along the way. When you bring Christ into every facet of your life, every facet of your life can be joyful, even when you go to work. You say, well, preacher, that's impossible. You don't know my boss. My boss is a monster. Well, that may be so. But if, if you're doing it, what you do because you love Jesus, because he's your master, then you can have joy even at work. Even if your boss is a monster. And uh, you can have joy anywhere and everywhere. And you can enjoy the blessings of life. And that's what these verses are talking about. There is nothing better. Nothing better. Now think about all Solomon had. He was the richest man on earth. There's nothing better. He would turn in all of his riches if he had to swap them for this. Nothing better than for a man to eat, to drink. And to enjoy his labor. Wow. Enjoy the small things. You know, we live, we live in a very busy, overwhelming world, don't we? And uh, apparently Solomon did too 3,000 years ago. And you and I today, we usually eat our meals, or sometimes we eat our meals. We, we pull up and roll our window down and grab something and take off down the road. We eat while we're driving, eat while we're riding. We don't even think about what we're eating. When we're through, we're not sure what we ate. The Lord is saying, think about this. God gives us everything we eat. We should, we should certainly, as believers, say a prayer of thanks for our food every time we eat a bite or drink anything. But not only should we say it, we ought to mean it too. We ought to be thankful. Be thankful for what you... Be thankful for what you eat and what you drink. Some of the men leaving after the first service told me they, that uh, one time they were on a project together and they went by to get something to eat and they were going to eat it while they were driving down the road and one of them said no I'm not going to eat it like that I'm going to wait till our, till our work time's over and I'm going to sit down and, uh, and eat this so I can enjoy it and uh, that's the idea eat and enjoy it make a meal something that is from the hand of God because it is from the hand of God recognize it as such and then what you, what you drink and also your labor. Enjoy the good of your labor. Again, the idea is not only your livelihood, but all your other activity, mowing the grass or whatever you're doing. Enjoy it because you're, uh, you're fellowshipping with the Lord. And it's that fellowship from the Lord that brings joy in life. So, enjoy the simple things. The, the, other, the other night, it's a rare thing. I don't want to give you the wrong impression. It's a rare thing. But the other night, Karen and I... I didn't have any emergencies at the hospital, didn't have any counseling, there was, there was no emergencies going on, and we didn't have anything one night, I think it was Thursday night, and, and it was very rare. We were looking at each other like, what are we going to do, you know? And uh, so we got in the car and drove a short distance over to Lake Brant Arena over there, and we, we just sat in the car and watched the sunset over the lake. It was quite beautiful. 
we didn't talk a whole lot. We talked a little bit. We talked about church because we always talk about church. We love, love the church and love people. Talked about people, some of the things they were going through. We said nice things to each other. And then we just watched the sun go down. God is saying, enjoy what you have. Instead of, instead of thinking if you had more, if you had better, if you had bigger, if you had newer, that you could be joyful. That's just not the case. Enjoy what you have now. A meal, something to drink. The work that you can do with your hands to earn a living. Enjoy those things. And then verse 25 says, For who can eat or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? Now that is, a, that, that is an awkward verse in the King James. For instance, the word hasten. See the word hasten there? The word hasten means to be excited with joy. So that the word hasten means, in, in our, you know, the way we read the word hasten means to hurry. But the idea in the Hebrew is to be, uh, to be excited with joy. Only God can do that. And then the idea of, the, of even uh, I there is somewhat confusing as well. I've got a quote here from Dr. Warren Wiersbe that's worth reading to you. He says... The translation of verse 25 in the King James is somewhat awkward. The New American Standard Bible is more understandable. It says, quote, For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without Him, without God? End of quote. Now the Amplified puts it like this. I'm, I'm laboring here for a minute because I think it's important. But uh, look at the, uh, back at my screen here and look at the Amplified. The Amplified says, For who can eat or who can have enjoyment any more than I apart from Him. And then uh, the Holman Bible puts it very plainly, because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from Him? Apart from Him. Remember, that's the idea of under the sun. Under the sun is without God or apart from Him. And so here he says, you, you couldn't eat apart from Him. Whatever you eat is because God allowed it to take place. I read where one old farmer used to pray before the meal and he would pray, Lord, thank you for the food we're going to eat and thank you for the ability to digest what we eat. <laughs> you know, if you couldn't digest it, you couldn't eat it. God gives you the health, the ability to eat and things to eat. It's all from His hand, you see. So we should be thankful for what we have. And then there's no joy apart from from Him. Our joy comes from the Lord. Everything else is meaningless. Now look at verse 26. For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight, wisdom, knowledge, and joy. Now this phrase, good in his sight, is usually translated in newer translations, pleasing to him. Usually when we use the word good, we mean it in a moral sense of being good. But the Bible says there's none good. Uh, and, and so uh, there is none good enough to approach God. So we need redemption. And so the idea here is not good as much as good in His sight or pleasing to Him. So if you're trying to please Him and live a way that pleases Him, He gives to us wisdom and knowledge 
and joy. Wisdom is that ability to make good decisions, to discern from good and evil, and to act upon it. Knowledge is the knowledge of facts and understanding the world around you and people and things around you. And the greatest knowledge, of course, is the knowledge of God Himself. And then there's joy, that tranquility of soul. It doesn't depend on the circumstances of life. I mean, you can have joy and tranquility of soul even when things are falling apart, if it's the joy of the Lord. And here it is again as a gift from God. God gives it. Wisdom, knowledge, and joy. He ought to be praised for that. And then it says, but to the sinner he gives travail. The word sinner here doesn't mean like we use it of all of us. We're all sinners. We've all sinned. But as it was used by the Pharisees in the New Testament, the idea is someone who is living in sin. They're they're going their own way, doing their own thing. They're living in a way they know is contrary to what God teaches in His Word. To that sinner, all he has is to gather, to heap up, that he may give it to him that is good before God. So here's the idea, and this has already been spoken of earlier in the chapter, but we, we haven't covered that part yet. The idea is you work and work and you gain and gain and you get bigger and bigger and richer and richer and then you die and somebody else gets it. That wouldn't be too bad if it was a son or a daughter that you love dearly, but maybe it's that maybe it's a nephew that you can't stand and he gets everything you've worked for your whole life. Boy, that's vanity of vanities, isn't it? I mean, that's meaning, meaningless and meaningless. Uh, or maybe even uh, an unbeliever might build this wealth and somehow it end up in the hands of a believer, which he would not have wanted that to happen. And so he says there at the end of verse 26, This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. This is frustrating and aggravating. You live your whole life and gaining everything and then you lose it all, maybe to somebody you don't even want to have it. And so under the sun, life is miserable and difficult and meaningless. What time do I have? Time to go. I need to close then with this. I'll close with a story told by Dr. Adrian Rogers about a, a theologian, a great theologian, as, as uh, Dr. Rogers would put it. He also would say about this man, and I quote, recognized as one of the greatest, world's greatest minds of our time. And he'd been teaching in the university and, and uh, teaching theology for all of his life and studying and And then late in life, he traveled to Europe and spoke in churches over there and gave lectures in universities and so on and so forth and and looked in the great libraries and and did studies and uh, enjoyed his travels. He comes back to the United States and some students are gathered around him and one of the students says to him, Doctor, in all your travels, in all your experience, in all of your studies... What is the most profound thought you've ever had? And the theologian smiled and said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You do not get any more profound 
than that. Enjoy that. Enjoy life. I didn't show it on the screen, but 1 Timothy says to us, He, the Lord, gives all things for us to enjoy. Let's enjoy life. Let's embrace life. Let's have joy in whatever we do. Bow with me, please. With our heads bowed, maybe you'd say, Preacher, I, I know I'm saved, no doubt about that. But I want you to pray for me because sometimes I get to looking for my satisfaction and peace and joy in other places. And sometimes I find life is like a treadmill and it seems all confusing and meaningless to me. But I don't want that. I want you to pray for me that I will know His joy and His wisdom and His knowledge and that He will keep His hand on me and I will know the, the joy of fellowship with Him. That's my prayer. If that's your prayer, would you slip your hands up all over the building? Yes, hands are everywhere. You may put them down. My hand's up as well. Maybe you'd say this, Preacher, I'm not saved. Pray for me. Anyone like that? No one would embarrass you. We want to pray for you. Anyone? Slip your hand up. By that you're saying, Preacher, pray for me. I've never trusted Christ, and Christ alone is my Savior. Anyone? All right. Father, thank you for our time together in your Word. Oh, what a beautiful book this is. Help us in the next weeks and months to find the gold and silver in this book. And I pray it will change us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me, please. Words are on the screen. We're going to sing together. And if you'd like to come for prayer, we invite you to come.